beautiful people and welcome back to Living Color Abroad. I'm your host, Angel Rodriguez. And in this episode, you'll be listening to Azikwe, who has lived abroad in Kuwait. Now, Azikwe is my colleague in Costa Rica, who I just met this week when we got back to work. And he's going to talk to us about his childhood and upbringing in South Carolina, how he got into education and eventually went abroad. Why he decided to move to Kuwait with his wife and start a family there. And finally, Azikwe, or Zeke, discusses why he wants to make Costa Rica his forever home. This was a great one. Hope you enjoy. This is A Living Color Abroad. Zeke, welcome to In Living Color Abroad. How you doing, man? I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And for those listening, once I knew Zeke, you're going to hear his story. Once I knew he was going to be here in Costa Rica, I had to get him on ASAP. <laughs> I wanted to know his story. <laughs> and he was gracious enough uh, to, to, to be on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. So, Zeke, let's get right to it. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, let's, uh, we'll start with my name. My name is Azikwe Chandler. And, uh, and my nickname is Zeke, and I don't mind anybody calling me Zeke as long as they know that it's spelled Z-I-K, because it's, um, the name is Igbo, which is native of Nigeria, mm-hmm. and so Z-I-K is written and pronounced, or Zeke is written and pronounced in Igbo, and, and so Z-I-K is, is the correct spelling. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And tell us, so let, let's start from the beginning, tell us a little bit about your story. All right, let's see, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, um, raised in... Wait, you, you were born in Brooklyn? I didn't know that, I didn't... <laughs> That's what's up. All right. We have that in common, too. That's cool. All right. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So my family moved down to, to Charleston, South Carolina, when I was about seven, eight years old. Okay. And um, so I grew up down south, but I would spend my summers in New York. And, um, you know, I really, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Charleston, but in Charleston is right. a, um, a um, tourist district. And there's a place called The Market. And if you ever, anybody who's been to Charleston has spent some time in the market. And so um, in the market is where people would go to get their handicrafts and, you know, anything that was uh, their souvenirs from Charleston. Mm-hmm. And so I, like, I used to like going down there, but every now and then, well, not every now and then, a lot when I was younger, you see Confederate flags all over the place. And, I, you know, I'd be upset about it. I'd want to, like, burn them down. Mm. And then, you know, spending the summers in New York, um, I loved, you know, being on the subway and then being able to hear two, three, five, six different languages on the subway going from one part of the city to another. Um, and so I loved that, that juxtaposition. And I, I remember thinking, well, if things are that different right here in the United States, what, you know, what must it be like in the rest of the world? My father and my, my parents always had um, National Geographic magazines around the house. And so, um, you know, I would always read those magazines and like, man, um, I, I'd love to be able to go to Machu Picchu and and uh, learn Spanish and and you know experience uh, what it's like to to be in the rainforest and things along those lines. I'd love to go to Africa and jump with the Maasai, mm. you know, going to safari. So I grew up with those kinds of ideas in my mind, um, and really wanted to get out and see the world. So um, I think I saw a Peace Corps commercial when I was in middle school, and I was like, "That's how I'm going to do it." You know, my family doesn't have any money. I don't know anybody with a passport, but Peace Corps, that's going to be my, my ticket out of here. And then I found out that you had to graduate from high school, graduate from college before you could become a Peace Corps volunteer. So I'm like, oh, I guess I got to go to college now. <laughs> not, so, not so easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so I went up and uh, ended up going to the University of Notre Dame. And um, while I was there, I studied architecture. And one of the beautiful things about studying architecture at Notre Dame is that everyone who studies architecture spends a year in Rome, Italy. So that was my wow. first experience abroad. And um, in Rome, man, this, you know, Italy is, is an incredible country in terms of food, in terms of you know history. There's um, art, the architecture. Um, you know, it's really very rich culturally wise. Now, you know, we can talk about history of oppression and colonizers and that kind of stuff. Um, but as my first experience abroad, I, I really um, was kind of spoiled by all of that. Right. And then let's see, I graduated from uh, from Notre Dame with a, a Bachelor of Architecture. I knew before I graduated that I wasn't going to become an architect because, um, you know, when I came home from school, 
Um, there were friends who were who were dead. There were others who were in college, and I was just like, "What's going on here?" Charleston, and um, and one of the things that really got me was that uh, you know when I started thinking about okay, what can I do to stem this this tide of, of young brothers going from um, for the, the, the drop out the prison pipeline, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, you know, what, what's different between me and these cats? You know, we lived in the projects for a little while too. My parents, you know, they loved each other. They loved us as kids. And, you know, there was a certain amount of discipline that was in the house. And um, and more than anything else, they, they instilled us with a sense of, um, of pride of self. You know, I was born into an Afrocentric collective in Brooklyn who was called the Huru Sasa, which means freedom now, in Kiswahili. And the idea was that these families, these black families came together and decided that the school system was failing black children and that they, they could do a better job. So they instilled a certain sense of pride, you know, where um, we believed in ourselves and didn't actually believe any of the, the negativity that was always being thrown at us. When we moved down south, um, I remember being at ele- uh, elementary school, was it called? Um, Pepper Hill Elementary School. And getting into a fight the first day of school because there was a white kid looking at me pointing to the Niger River on the um, on the globe. And he said, look, there's a nigger river in Africa. And everybody wow. starts laughing. Wow, wow. And, um, and what, so year, what year is this? Face. What year is this? This is, I mean, I'm old, bro. So this <laughs> is, um, <laughs> it's all good, man. <laughs> I'm born in 71, so I'm like, it's like 79. Okay, yeah, okay. 79. Yeah. So um, I punch him in the face and I get, I get uh, you know, kicked out of school or sent home with a pink slip. Um, and, and so that was Pepper Hill Elementary now. You know, and I started going by the name Terry Chandler. You know, that was my middle name. I started writing Terry Chandler on the papers, and I came home one day, and my, my uh, you know, I was all worried because I was like, ah, oh. you know, I got, I got, I, I didn't think I was going to do well on this spelling test, and I came home and I got a hundred, but I was so excited I forgot to erase Terry on my <laughs> and uh, and I showed it to my mom, and she was like, oh, great, I, I knew you'd do fine. Um, I told you all you had to do was study. I said, but who's Terry Chandler? I was like, oh, man, I forgot. Uh, and, uh, and she puts it on the refrigerator. And I'm just like, oh, boy, I'm going to get it now. Because my father's a disciplinarian. He wasn't home yet. I'm just like, oh, boy. okay, I'm in my room doing my homework. And he, he used to drive this big green Buick. And you could hear it coming down the street. <laughs> so I heard him pull into the driveway. And I'm like, okay, here it goes. And he said, Terry Chandler? Who's Terry Chandler? I'm like, ah. So he calls me out and he says, um, he says, uh, Ungalia, and which means um, fold your arms and stand up attention. Mm. Uh, and so I'm standing up straight and he says, um, who is Terry Chandler? I said, oh, come on, Pop, you know, everybody uses their middle names here, blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, son. <laughs> he said, what is your name? I said, Ezekiel Chandler. He said, um, and what is the, the uh, second principle of the Nguzo Saba? Um, we grew up celebrating Kwanzaa, so the second mm. principle is Kuti Dagalia which means self-determination, the right. definition of which is to name ourselves, define ourselves, speak for ourselves, and create for ourselves instead of being named, defined, spoken for, and created for by others. Mm. And um, so I had to recite that. And he said, now listen, I know your classmates have names like Pee and Bobby and Susie, and that's great for them because it's paying homage to their ancestors. But we named you Azikwe because we want you to be proud of your ancestry. Mm. So, you know, so what does Azikwe mean? Healthy and vigorous in body and mind. He said, that's right. Now, you can write Azikwe Terry Chandler on all your papers if you want, but Terry is your middle name. So you can write Azikwe Terry Chandler if you want, but Azikwe <laughs> will be the first name that you write on your paper from now on. Do you understand? <laughs> yes, Pop. And, and so for, to, to this day, I still sign my name, Azikwe T. Chandler. So it was no, no was whooping, no whooping, just a nice lesson. <laughs> no, no, it was, it, was, it was just a lesson at that time. Uh, we, they didn't reserve, they didn't... Um, spare the belt, but you know we only got it when it was really, you know, if, right. if it was egregious. It was really, right, so right. In this right, case, right. you know, but what they understood more importantly was that because we had left Brooklyn and we didn't have that community of that Afrocentric community around us anymore, the day themselves, my parents had to make sure that we were still getting those lessons in, in African American history and pride, so that we would still have pride in ourselves. Right. And so while I was in school learning about, you know, Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, I'd come home and they made sure that we studied, we learned about Benjamin Banneken and George Washington Carver. And right. so they were, they were, that was really important. And, and so when I look back on, 
you know, these brothers that were ending up in jail and, you know, kids I went to school with, kids I played soccer with, um, one of the things that um, I thought was, well, maybe if we had an Uru Sasa here in Charleston, that would help save these young brothers and keep them out of, out of this kind of trouble mm. because they're just looking for family when it's all said and done. Right. But if mom's working two jobs and papa's not around, um, then, you know, they're going to find family on the corner. And unfortunately, that leads to some negativity. So before I graduated, I was like, okay, I'm going to go into education eventually. Um, that's what I want to do. That's how I can save lives. I can't gift these folks to my parents, but if I created a school where I would embrace them and, and fill them with pride of self, that knowledge of self, then um, then perhaps that would be the thing that would keep more young brothers from going to jail. Let's let's um, let's stop it right there, because you're first of all, you're a great storyteller. <laughs> my God, you I can listen to you for forever, but you know we're gonna get, <laughs> we're gonna an hour of this I could I could put on. But no, I mean, gotcha, gotcha. A, you, I just want to say, now you're good, you're good. I just think, I mean, that, first of all, that story is just extremely powerful. You know, growing up, born and raised in Brooklyn, moving to Charleston, South Carolina, going what you went through, be a family, giving you that lesson of just because we move anywhere we move to, we still got to keep that pride within us, even if the people that are around us don't necessarily look like us. And that's I think right. that's important about, you know, us living abroad is the whole, and the whole idea of this podcast is to have more people that look like you and I abroad and for us to maintain that pride of where we come from and our upbringing and hopefully inspires others that look like us from our communities back home to do the same. So I just have such a powerful story. And like, I think obviously your story is testament to that. And that's, that's dope as hell. But so let's go right. So when you became, when you decide to become a teacher, right. And in mm-hmm. South Carolina, and the funny thing is about South Carolina, I don't know much about it, but I do have some mm-hmm. friends that are from South Carolina that live abroad. So I'm like, right. this is interesting. I'm like, what? Because right. when I went to do the job fair, I'm thinking I'm gonna find people from big cities like Cali, you know, from from you know whatever, L.A., you know, New York City, mm-hmm. whatever, Chicago, and I find people from like South Carolina. I'm like, I didn't expect this. <laughs> so, right. so, so what do you? Maybe you would give some insight into that. What do you think is about? Obviously, these are anecdotal stories, but do you think mm-hmm. there's something about you know maybe teaching in South Carolina? or growing up in South Carolina that leads someone like yourself and others that I know to want to go abroad in general? Um, yes. Yeah. But, but I, I would, first of all, I, I want to give you some props for, for, for this podcast, because I think that what you're doing is kind of, is, is one of the reasons that you find more people from South Carolina and from, I mean, everywhere really right. getting out and seeing the world because it really has to do with, with exposure, right? Mm-hmm. When you know that someone else has done it, then you can say, oh, I didn't even know that was an option. I, I can do that, too. This is answering your question. That's long-winded, but uh, teachers in South Carolina don't make a whole lot of money. The second thing was, in order to make ends meet now, um, I'm driving for Uber and Lyft on the weekends. Wow. You know, Charleston's a big tourist city. Yeah. And so that's the second thing. Now, when I tell you that I'm driving for Uber and Lyft, I'm driving Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, but I kid you not, not 10 days went by that I was not pulled over by the police. Mm. And so mm. you think about that now, I mean, I don't know how, how long ago, you know, you, when it was the last you lived in the States, but I'm talking about within a year's time, I'm getting pulled over 30 times. Damn. And, you know, we know about Philando Castillo. We know about Sandra Bland. We know about all these people who die at the hands of police on the side of the road. Mm. I felt safest when I had white passengers who would cuss the police out and tell them, no, you're wrong, you're racist, blah, blah, blah. Right. But if I was by myself, who knows what's going to happen. When it's all said and done, I can't start a school here in Charleston if I'm not alive. And between getting stopped by the cops, you know, every 10 days, between these folks trying not to give me my certification, it just felt like there was this assault on me, on, on my humanity, on me as a person. And they, quite honestly... I might not make it out alive. And so that was, for me, that for me, that's what made me say, I got to get out of here. And then Trump won too. Um, I was like, nah, we got to go. So I told him, so I got, <laughs> uh, I met my, my, the love of my life and we got married and, and ended up going to Venezuela. Wow. Um, where did you meet her? Where did you meet your wife? I met her in Charleston. She had okay. just moved to Charleston. And, uh, and uh, for the first, I you know, I'd been, a couch surfing guest in many parts of the world. People had taken me in and shown me that city in Barcelona and Benacasem and Rome and many other places. Um, but I'd never hosted. So now I was in Charleston. I just moved there. My daughter had just left and I was feeling, you know, that I had an apartment and I had a room, her room was already, but it was like, you know, now it's time for me to pay it forward. Let me see if I can help anybody who needs a place, um, who's passing through Charleston. Mm. And, 
you know, I, I told myself that I, I didn't say I would never get married again, but I said that if I did, she would have to be the one. And I was dating and, and wasn't enjoying the dating scene. I was like, I'm not dating anymore. And lo and behold, on my front door, I kid you not, she, you know, she, she came and she stayed for a while and um, brightened up the place. I mean, really kind of turned it from black and white to technicolor. And, uh, and we've been together ever since, man. That's amazing. And it's been a beautiful, a beautiful ride. So. That's amazing. So I mean, again, like you're you're a great storyteller, and I wish I could just obviously we gotta talk more offline <laughs> about your whole life in general. But this episode is about Kuwait, and we're gonna, and we're gonna okay. get to that in a second. All right. So at what moment did the opportunity to go to Kuwait come about? So I was um so I was teaching in Venezuela when I left um, South Carolina. I um you know someone and I, I told my my wife uh, she wasn't my wife at the time. Um, she's my fiance, but I was just like, we got to go. And so I immediately started, went on Thai online and started looking at international opportunities. And, um, and at that time, uh, Venezuela was one of the four countries that I was looking at. And they ended up, you know, because Venezuela was going through crisis at the time, right. they ended up paying a, 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 they had a nice salary, which basically amounted to hazard pay. They really had to pay that to attract people. Right. So we ended up in Venezuela. I did a year there. And at the end of, actually, I hadn't even done a year yet. I think it was, we must have gotten there in July. And um, they were asking if we were going to sign the contract to stay home for the second year, um, probably in October already. And I was just like, well, nah, I don't think we're going to be able to stay. The reason being, when we got there, the dollar was, uh, $1 was worth 10,000 Bolivar days. And by October, $1 was worth 100,000 Bolivar days. Which basically meant that inflation was ridiculous, right. and that you know to find you could find a carton of milk at one store, but they wouldn't have anything else. Then you have to drive for an hour, and you might find tomatoes at the next store, but they wouldn't have anything else. Wow. And so things were getting ridiculous on that end. Um, never see tires burning and, and crowds going crazy, but you know that that hassle and the volatility of it all just made made us feel like no, we're not going to sign another year. Mm. Okay. So then. Um, I decided to go to a career fair in New York. Um, and I think that was probably February of 2018. And when I went to the career fair, I came away from that with six different um, options. And so, nice. you know, I came back home to my wife and I said, okay, we can consider um, it's between Mexico, China, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and I can't remember the fifth place right now. Um, the fifth and sixth place. But anyway, when we sat down and looked at it all, we have, we started, we had to look at our objectives. So one, I had never been to that part of the world. So I was like, yeah, I might, that might be interesting. You know, we're looking at the options that are on the table and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait were paying the highest. Um, Mexico would have been better in terms of, you know, what we wanted in terms of, you know, having green, greenery, um, you know, lush environments, tropical environments. That's what we, we were after. But they weren't, they weren't paying anything. So when it was all said and done, it, it really came down between Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. And um, she, she was like, yeah, I'm not feeling Saudi Arabia. You know, women had just got the opportunity to drive. And um, in Saudi Arabia, is just kind of very restrictive. So um, when, we, when I told her about, you know, speaking with the people in Kuwait, I said, well, you know, the um, superintendent and the principal seemed good, seemed pretty cool. And what they told me about the country um, or the school or the other people about the school, I feel like that's probably the best option, mainly because she and I were talking about starting a family. Um, they had these uh, family units that were huge, huge apartments, three bedroom, three bathroom. Wow. Um, the health insurance was excellent. Like a number of families had already gone there and started their families there as well. So when we talked to them, um, they talked about the the experience of giving birth at the at a hospital that overlooked the the Gulf. Um, you know the 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 delivery room after you had the baby, right. the recovery room. You know they give you three days in the hospital and you're looking over the Gulf. Um, and so the health insurance was excellent. And so we was like, all right, let's give that a try. And for us, we knew it was going to be a means to an end. It was by the water, so we thought, ah, the beach, we can make that work. It's the desert, but it's right on the water, so we can make that work. And so, you know, that's how we decided on Kuwait. And um, and we got there in 2018. And uh, the first uh, first year, there it, it, it was some things I didn't like when we first got there. But, you know, the, the principal and the suit, 
Actually, I wouldn't even, I'm not even going to give the, the principal or the superintendent <laughs> that, that credit. There was a brother there that was the vice principal. And um, and when he saw what was going on, like they had promised us a, a family unit. And then when we got there, they had us in the singles building. Wow. And that was the first thing. I was like, mother, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm telling my, you know, because my wife's family, they were cool, but you know they were they were a little skeptical. Like we meet, we get married, and I whisk her off. Even as right, right, right. You know, and, and, and so her mom looks at the at the um, she, you know when when I tell her we're going to Matavine, she looks it up online and she's like, "That's about one of the most ten most dangerous cities in the world. Where are you taking my daughter?" And so we go from there. And now I'm saying, "Okay, now we're going to Kuwait." Like, what? What are you going all the way to Kuwait? And I'm oh, like, "Oh, man. it's okay, it's safe." And then she's like, "Well." So the way I'm selling it is like, yeah, but we're gonna have this big apartment. So when we, so when Carmen gets pregnant, you guys will have your own bedroom, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then we get there, and when this tiny little two bedroom apartment, <laughs> um, we get into the bedroom, and it's like one full size bed with one pillow on it. Damn. They don't even have any towels. And I'm like, this is some <laughs> bullshit. Um, so I'm hot. I'm hot, and I'm calling people. I'm already looking for another job. I'm just like, nope, we not staying <laughs> Mexico, <laughs> let me call back plan. Mexico. <laughs> 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 I'm like, then I gave us all. I don't fell for the hokey though. Um, but there was, but there was a brother that was the vice principal in uh, in the middle school, and he talked to some folks and made some things work out. So finally, we got into our unit, and um, and one the good thing that I will say is the pay was good. They were honest. We got paid on time. We got paid what we were supposed to get paid. We got paid, you know, an indemnity when we left. So, you know, it was a big bonus when we left. So that aspect of it was good. Um, the other families that they mentioned, like the people that I talked to, when my daughter was born, we hardly bought anything. There were so many other families that had been there and had kids that people were just bringing us um, a stroller, a baby, um, a cat, uh, what do you call it, a car seat. Yeah. Um, baby clothes and the whole nine. So it really ended up being everything that we needed it to be, which was we wanted to go start our family, we wanted to save some money, and we wanted to use that time to find our dream location. Um, and so that's how we ended up here in awesome. Costa Rica. That, that's crazy. So so you're in, you're in Kuwait in 2018, right? Um, yes. You get there, you know, you're going through all the all these motions of you know getting the, the apartment the way you want and all things you, you know that you rightly deserved you, you and your wife and your family. Um, tell me about you, again, you mentioned your experience in Venezuela, growing up in Charleston. Um, what did you anticipate being the lifestyle for you as a black man and for your black family in Kuwait? You said, you mentioned there was, there was, you said, you mentioned there was someone that was a vice principal, but what, what was the reality of the situation and did it match what was in your head? That's a good question. Um, you know, Kuwait is probably my, uh, was probably my 47th country. Like, I, I've done a lot of Damn. <laughs> yeah. 47, shit, all right. <laughs> so, so by the time I got to Kuwait, I knew, um, you know, just not to go in with a whole lot of expectations, but to go in with an open mind to be flexible. Um, so in terms of my, my expectations, I, you know, I can't say that I had a lot. I, I think that I expected that I would learn some Arabic, um, that I would meet some Kuwaitis and, and, and understand Kuwaiti culture and get to experience, you know, travel throughout the region and find out more about, um, not only Kuwait, but, you know, the nearby countries, um, which is kind of crazy when you think about it because Kuwait is bordered by, um, Iran, Iraq, and uh, Saudi Arabia. So it's not like you're tra- you're not driving out of Kuwait to, <laughs> to any place. Else. You can fly from Kuwait to Dubai and, and Jordan and you know some of these other places, Abu Dhabi, and, and you really wanted to get to Egypt, um, weren't able to do that. So I don't think I had a lot of um, huge expectations for Kuwait, to be honest. Aside from you know saving money and then learning a little bit about the culture. Um, but what was interesting, what's interesting about Kuwait is that um, it's one of the few countries in the world that actually has more uh, foreigners living in the country than they actually have Kuwaiti citizens. That's so uh, crazy. Yeah, two thirds of the population is from the Philippines, um, Bangladesh, India. Like they import all of these people because they've got so much oil and so much money. Mm, so right, they basically. Right. And I think I think I have a friend that's from South Carolina. She lives in Qatar, and I think she was telling mm-hmm. me something similar about that. There's more foreigners right. in Qatar than actual Qataris, 
And, and I mean, okay, so I had an offer to Qatar, right, when I was looking for jobs abroad. And I didn't consider it. I knew, you know, because, you know, the, the the stereotype of these countries in the Middle East is, okay, this is where you're going to get paid. Right, you're going to get paid right. here, but you're not going to necessarily want to be there. And like that, that at least what I had in my head, right? So I never right. even cons- really considered it. But like you said, to go to a place like Kuwait that obviously was a huge part of the war. <laughs> when you heard of Kuwait, you heard it in 2003. You know what I mean? When the Iraq war was going on. So obviously that, that was 25 years ago or whatever. But to think about going there to live there, you yourself, right? And then you talk about bringing your family there. And obviously you've traveled all around the world. But you, like you said you have to have an open mind about it. And you got to have some assurances, right? As far as financially, you know, personally and all these things. So that that's why I think it's so wild that first of all I got somebody that lived in Kuwait <laughs> and could tell you about the experience as someone that's from again, you know, South Carolina, you know, just a, a, a state, you know, but you've been all over the world. So it's it's really it's really awesome, but also crazy. And I can't even wrap my head around it that someone's actually <laughs> that someone that they, you know you have to take this that that leap, right? And you've taken many leaps. And you took this other leap, but this time with a family. So talk about that dynamic. Were you going by yourself to all these places, couch surfing, and now you know you need to protect, you know, your family, right? Your wife and your child, or your child that you will have in Kuwait, that you did have in Kuwait. So what was that mindset of a soon-to-be father and husband instead of you moving abroad by yourself? Yeah, again, that's that's a huge part of it because... If it was just me, then I, I might have just said, "Fuck it, I'm going. I'm going to go to Mexico because Mexico, you know, I won't make a lot of money, but I don't need anything. It's right. just me." Um, but when I'm thinking, "Yes, I'm not, I have a wife now, and we want to start a family. And if I'm going to be a provider, then I need to make sure that we have enough money um, to do the things that we want to do. That we're going to be secure." And when it came down to it, that's what that's what Kuwait offered. So um, for me, I, I guess it wasn't like I felt like we would experience the culture. Um, you know, cause, I, cause that had been my experience everywhere else that I'd been, like, you know, everywhere else that I've traveled, um, you know, I, pl- I play soccer so I could find a pickup soccer game and I would meet mm-hmm. people that way. And, and in doing so, you know, I'd end up being invited to dinners, to, to people's homes and, and really got to experience the culture in that way. Um, so I, ex- I expected that we'd experience the culture at some point, but for me, the most important thing at that point was making sure, um, that we were going to be able to save enough money. Um, to do what we wanted to do next. And also, you know, I have, uh, I have my daughter from my previous marriage, so I needed to be able to get back to her mm. um, for the breaks because, she, you know, she spends summer with us. She spends um, uh, the winter break with us. So, um, so that's what Kuwait offered. or offered that stability. Um, and so that was, that was a huge part of it. Now, again, Saudi Arabia, I think, was paying more money. Um, and, but... You know, my wife wouldn't have felt as comfortable there right, because right. you know it was much more conservative, and not that she's one of those people who's out there, you know, showing off her midriff and, and all of that kind of <laughs> stuff. But she didn't want to be working around, walking around in the burger. Right, right. So it was like, yeah, we'll, we'll do Kuwait instead. Right, um, right. So yeah, it, you definitely have to be in a different mindset in terms of you know, it's a team effort now. What, what's going to make her comfortable? With how, how are we going to do this together? And um, and again, Kuwait was the choice because she wanted she would feel more comfortable there. We could save more money. And again, you know, this whole business of of, um, of women giving birth, you know, the mortality rate for Black women in the United States um, giving birth is ridiculous for a quote unquote developed country. Right. Um, but you know, you don't have that. You don't have. You don't hear about um, women dying giving birth in Kuwait. And so that was another thing to consider there. So again a great part of the consideration was because it was my family we right. knew that we'd have great health care we knew that we'd save some money we knew that we'd have a, a nice living situation and so all of those things were were a huge part of, of why i chose that you oh. know as a family man versus um you know making a, a decision as a single person makes sense makes sense now and now let's get into obviously you say you kuwait and there's more foreigners than people that are kuwaiti right so you call them right? kuwaiti yeah. Right. Yeah. So the Kuwaiti people there, they're they're, they're mostly Arabs. That's like their 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 background as well. Um, the background I think they say is uh, Bedouin. Um, okay. And there's some discussion about you know what that really means. Um, but Kuwait as a you know started out as a I think it actually translates to fort or something like that. Okay. And so it was a trading post um, right on the water there, and I think they became famous for pearls or something. Um, but you know, right 
uh, I want to say it was the 60s, 70s when they discovered oil. And, and, they, and so most of their money is made from the revenue from investments in oil. Got it. Got which it. means that um, they got so much money that, um, that citizens actually paid. Like, they don't have to work, but they, they receive money from the government, um, you know, uh, uh, annually. Um, and they, they have housing the whole nine. Wow. So because Kuwaitis are taken care of by their government, again, you know, they hire the Indians to work in the oil field, mm. right? They hire, they hire the Filipinos to work in the housing, uh, in the hospitality industry, and then they hire English-speaking folks to come teach their kids so that their kids can speak English and be able to go wherever they want to go in the world. So wild. Right? What that means is that we're all seen as employees, right? Right. All, and none of us can become citizens there. You know what I mean? Ku- Kuwaiti. Kuwaiti citizens, you have to be born in you have to be born in Kuwait and show that you have lineage um, that goes back to uh, X amount of years of um, Kuwaiti parentage, and that's how you only those people can be considered citizens in the country. Got it. Um, got it. It's very so it's very transactional in that aspect. You say they look at you as employees, right? So it, given exactly. that given that dynamic, how you describe the relationship you had with the locals that you would meet? What was that like? Um, it, to be honest, man, one of the one of the uh, ways you can make a lot of money in Kuwait is, is by tutoring. Like, um, I think you know, I, I heard something about tutoring in Costa Rica. I haven't actually figured out how much people get paid, but <laughs> but there, um, you get paid twenty five k d an hour, which in one k one Kuwaiti dinar is worth uh, three dollars and thirty and thirty three cents, right? Okay. So you're getting paid over $75 an hour just to tutor kids, wow. right? So in, in, the, in the hierarchy of, um, of, of employees or servants, you know, that's, that's the way they're looking at us. We're all there to serve them. Um, you know, we're pretty high up on the totem pole. Mm. Um, so, so that part is good. Like, you can make the money. But, but what that means, again, is they're pretty um, sealed off. You know, Kuwaitis hang out with Kuwaitis, and mm. everybody else is kind of a servant. So, right. um you know, I would. I ended up in a few of their homes, and one kid that I tutored. Um, you know, when they found out that my daughter was being born, um, the grandma and the mom and everybody they gave us all these gifts for her, um, and said, "Oh, your family, you're like family now." And in this particular family, I do feel you know that I'll be in touch with for a long time. Um, but for the most part, no, I don't. I don't feel like I was ever invited into folks' homes as as a friend. Um, as I had been in most of the other places that I've been in the world, I mean, you know, I can, I can, I can point you to you know, a number of friends around the world where, you know, I feel like these are lifelong, solid relationships. But in Kuwait, I can't say that I had that that experience. My best friend there was a brother who um, is of Somali parentage, and, and he and I hung out because we we linked up playing soccer. Um, but in terms of so I, I considered him a local, you know, he spoke right. Arabic, but, but even he is not, having been born in Kuwait, he's still not really seen as a Kuwaiti. He's wow. still seen as a foreigner there. That's so, that's so interesting. And the school that you worked at is like, is it like an American school or what? Yeah, in fact, it's called the American School of oh, Kuwait. Kuwait. It's okay. probably <laughs> the, the, the oldest international school there. Oh, wow. Um, and it was founded, I, I believe, to to serve um, embassy kids. You know, there were a lot of kids right. that came over and were part of the embassy. So that's how it got started. Um, in in years gone by, it was it was the the gold standard for international schools in Kuwait. But now, um, you know, it's it's old, and there are a lot of other new schools that have popped up. Right. Um, right. And, and the population is probably I don't know seventy five, eighty, maybe even ninety percent Kuwaiti. Right. Um, kids that are there, and 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 it's interesting because it, it didn't feel like there was a lot of um, how can I put this? It didn't feel like this. Like so, there's a thing called Wasta in in the Near East. So technically, Kuwait is the Near East, not the Middle East. The Middle East would be okay. you know um, the other side, Egypt, etc. Um, but on this side, it's called the Near East. And so, um, Wasta, it means that basically if you come from a family of influence, there's a lot of stuff you don't have to do, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, 
And so what that means in the classroom is that some kids feel like they don't have to do homework, you right, know, because right. their family got Wasta. And if you give them a, an F, then, you know, their parents are going to call the school and that grade is going to be changed anyway. Right. Um, so there was a lot of that, that Wasta mentality and, and kids kind of looking at you like, look, you work for me. I don't have to do nothing you say. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm a veteran teacher. So, um, so you know, when I would meet with parents, and I remember them trying to intimidate me at the beginning and saying, he doesn't know how to teach, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, parents would call. And once I sit down and have a meeting with the parent, um, the parent's like, well, you know, I don't care if he, if he doesn't do all of his work. I want him to feel valued in the classroom. I said, listen, I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. But I am a math teacher, and my objective is to make sure that your child understands mathematics. I don't want him to be the best one in my class. I don't want him to be the best one uh, in at the school or even in Kuwait. I want him to be able to be a world-class mathematician, meaning if he took a test anywhere in the world, he can do all of the things that are in this year's standards and, and below. That's my objective. Now, if he does what I'm asking him to do, he's going to be fine, and he will be a world-class mathematician. But if that's not what you want for your child, if you don't want him to do all of the work, he failed this test because he didn't do the formative assignments that prepared him for the test. And that's why he failed it. And if he continues not to do the formatives, he's going to continue to fail. If he does the work, then he passes the summative, and now he's prepared. So that's what my objective is. Now, you tell me what it is you want. Do you want to be a world-class mathematician, or do you want him not to do his work? Because whatever you want, that's what I'm here for. And nine times out of ten, you know, no kid is going to move, no parent is going to say, I want him to fail. Right, um, and right, some right. of them, you know, some of them would at some point still be like, yeah, whatever. Uh, he's going to be all right. We got money. Um, that, but most of them, you know, after hearing that argument would be like, okay, I didn't realize he wasn't doing his work. He's going to be doing his work from now on. Right. So, right, right. No, I think, I think that's well said. Um, and not to switch gears a little bit, to put a nice little bow in Kuwait. So you were, you were in Kuwait for two years, right? Three. Three years. Okay, three mm-hmm. years. All right. So you said three years. Longest, and- I've ever, longest I've ever lived anywhere. Oh, wow. Look at that. Look at that. Awesome. Awesome. So obviously it was, like you said earlier, it was a means to an end, but you had, you the goals that you set for yourself, you kind of achieved while you were there. Would you say that? Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Awesome. And now comes, you know, to you accepting a, a position in beautiful Pura Vida, Costa Rica, where you are my colleague now, which is pretty cool. <laughs> but before we Absolutely. get, we're going to talk only a little bit about Costa Rica, but I want you to tell the story of how you got in contact with me. Because I've told this story to friends of mine, and they're like, that's <laughs> insane. So please, uh, you know, tell, tell our listeners how you got in contact with me. Because I did not know you before you got in contact with me. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So... Um, I'm not sure if I'd actually accepted the job yet or if I was still considering a job. I think, I think I you probably were cons- had yeah, accepted. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what it, what it was was I had, uh, so it was, so I knew that we would be out last year and, um, and I knew that we wanted to, you know, my wife and I, when we thought about our forever country, you know, there were a few, there were really three things that we wanted in our lives. We wanted to be able to have, uh, a piece of land where we could have a coconut tree, a mango tree, and be 30, uh, 30 minutes or less from the beach. That's what we wanted. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be in a country that had people with dark skin. And um, and for me, we were looking at uh, Tanzania. I'd been to Tanzania and really loved Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Um, had already, you know, I already had an idea where we would live and, and what that would look like. Um, but when the pandemic hit, it was just like, oh, we're very far away from family. Um and, you know, my father is going to be 75 this year. My wife's parents are in their late 60s um, or mid to late 60s. So we didn't want to, we wanted to be closer to them. Um, and so that's when we decided, okay, well, let's start looking in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, the Caribbean was attractive, but it was like, eh, you know, hurricanes are, are becoming more frequent and more violent. Um, let's look at the most secure countries. And so... You know, when I started looking at, you know, places where people want to retire, places that have, ex, you know, good governments, places that had great responses to the pandemic, Costa Rica was the top of the list. So there's Costa Rica, Panama, and Colombia were the countries that we were considering. Mm. And um, and so then I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, uh, Costa Rica is number one. If we can't land Costa Rica, then we'll look at Panama and maybe get to Costa Rica after. Um, so I started hitting, you know, I'm, I'm on ISS, I'm on Search Associates, I'm on Tie Online, I'm updating my resume. And I'm, you know, looking at all these different schools. 
So now CDS pops up on my radar <laughs> and I apply there and I, I look at the, the school and I'm like, wow, this looks great. Mm. You know, I'm looking at the mission statement. I'm looking at the, the actual, the physical buildings of the school and, you know, the photos and whatnot. And I'm like, wow, that's, this looks like this might even be better than Lincoln. Let me go ahead and apply <laughs> here. And, um, and, and I think, I think I did interview already. I think I had already mm. interviewed with, with, uh, with Scott and, and Jose Luis. And, um, and I was like, is it this, is it really this good? I need to talk to somebody at the school. Cause you know, this, this feels like it might be too good to be true. Um, and so now I'm online and I'm, I'm just, you know, typing in Costa Rica, I'm typing in podcasts, I'm typing in, you know, uh, people of color in Costa Rica, blah, blah, blah. And your podcast came up and I'm listening to, uh, who are you talking to? Julio, Julio, Julio. Yeah, yeah. Listen Julio, to shout out to Julio. Julio. Who's listening? He's in Brazil right now. So shout out to Julio. But go ahead. <laughs> so I'm listening to the podcast and I'm like, all right. And I feel like I'm going to say, I wonder if he's actually at CDS. And um, and you're telling the story about um, about uh, coming into the country right, right, right. and not being there and then having to go right back yeah, out. Yeah, when I got they deported, right. I was on another podcast <laughs> being interviewed. You followed through that podcast and I mentioned my story about being deported. And accidentally, I slipped in the name of our HR person who shall remain nameless now. But <laughs> right, so, right. She and, said her name, right. That's, that's how it happened. Because when you mentioned her name, I was like, yep. Got that's him. Really got him. <laughs> you are an investigative reporter, Zeke. <laughs> So that story is so crazy to me because it, it kind of showed me that this is what I want my podcast to be about. If people are reaching mm-hmm. out to me, not only through, you know, listen to my podcast, but reach out to me personally and find out what, what it's actually like and either through my interviews and then finding out, because it's not just my story, you've done this too. Now listen to your story, right? And like you said, there's humanity in that and listening to people's stories of what they've gone through that gives you perspective. Even if you haven't, I have not lived your experience, but hearing your story gives me perspective just in listening to it right and mm-hmm. i think if we have more like you said it's just better for the world <laughs> and we listen to each other's stories more where we come from our perspectives on life and the different places that we've been to that we might not ever ever get to go to but hey at least we heard somebody tell the story about what it was like in in said country so i think that's so dope so final segment of the podcast unfortunately zeke i could talk to you for hours i know i will in the future as you're my colleague now <laughs> over a couple yes, of beers but alright final segment of the podcast lightning round questions so one word responses whatever is the first thing that comes to your mind okay alright here we go first question what is your favorite phrase in Arabic shukran what does that mean thank you okay shukran okay okay I know inshallah that's the only thing I know I know inshallah uh. <laughs> alright favorite place in Kuwait Um, I'll say Heath Park. It's, it's, it's some of the green space, and they keep it clean down there. And it's it's a it's one of the few green places in the in the country. And what's it called again? I'll say Heath Park. I'll it's right down Park. downtown. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Next question: What is your favorite Kuwaiti dish? All right. <laughs> uh, that's a good question, man. I, I, <laughs> What I should say is like magbush because they have what it's called spice. It's supposed to be like spiced rice with a meat on top, like and chicken mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but to be honest, man, and I'm sorry, there's not a one word, but to be honest, <laughs> it just there was not. When I ask my students without fail, 
you know, because we were coming towards the end and I was telling my wife, like, we haven't experienced much of Kuwait. So I gave my students a survey and I said, you know, what are your favorite restaurants? And I said specifically your favorite Kuwaiti restaurants. And most of them listed U.S. chain restaurants. And when I pushed <laughs> them again, then they would list, they would name like Lebanese restaurants. And mm. I was just like, what about Kuwaiti food? So, um, so, you know, I've been around the world and I can, in most countries, I can say, ah, oh, yeah, this, this, this dish or that dish. And I can tell you that my bush is good, but, um, but no, we, we probably ate more, more Thai and Indian food and Lebanese food <laughs> than, we, than we did Kuwaiti food. So, gotcha, um, gotcha. Well, that's, that's, that's perspective in that. That's good to know. <laughs> All right. And now final, final question is not a one word answer. You have 60 seconds or so, or whatever you want. What would you tell people about not just your experience and the story that you told, which is a fantastic story that I want to know more about, but about this idea of feeling, finding, you know, it's cliche to say that you find yourself in other places around the world, but what is it like to find stability? You mentioned stability tonight in Kuwait. Tell me, what, what is that feeling and why do you think other people should just strive this sense of, and obviously people look for it, but what tips do you give to find this financial stability and what do you kind of need, not just on the outside, right, the, the work you need to do, but what do you need internally in order to prepare yourself to find that stability that you want out of life and in this context abroad? You know, um, so I work for a program called AmeriCorps NCCC, which is the National Civilian Community Corps, and that was what I did right out of college. Um, and, and one of the things I loved about the program was that it took 18 to 24-year-olds um, from all over the world, you could be you could be a college graduate, you could be a high school dropout, but you would work on a team with other 18 to 24 year olds to solve some of the biggest problems facing the United States. You work on homelessness, you work on education, and you work in a team to do these things. Um, now, for me, I became a recruiter after doing two years with them because I believed in the program so much. And so I would speak at all of these different schools. And I remember speaking at a school in Washington, D.C. And I'm like, listen, man, it's one of the best programs in the world. It's like going off to college, but you don't have to pay for it. In fact, they pay for you. You have your own house. You, you know, you have housing paid for. You get a, an educational stipend when you're done. Um, you're going to live with uh, 318 to 24 year olds. Your campus might be in Denver, but you might work in projects down in, um, you know, in Portland, Oregon. You might work in uh, projects down in, um, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico and national parks. You're going to get to see the whole country. Mm. And, um, you know, at the end of this presentation, I'm asking, okay, it's like, who wants an, uh, an application? I'm thinking I did a great job. And I want to see, <laughs> you know, all these hands shoot up in the air and, and like three or four hands go up. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not doing my job if I only see three hands. Could somebody please tell me what it is I'm doing wrong up here. Because if, if I were in your seat, if I, when I was your age, this is the opportunity I was looking for. And one of them said, listen, man, you know, my mom is here. My girlfriend's here. Like everybody's here. Why would I want to go halfway across the country? And it had never occurred to me that not everybody wanted to travel. So I say all of that to say that, um, first of all, I think you have to have a bit of an adventurous spirit if you're talking about leaving the country. Because you are going to be away from your family. You are going to be um, in an environment where you might feel a little lonely. So if you don't have that adventurous spirit, it might not be for you. On the other hand, if you are the kind of person that likes new experiences, that likes meeting other people, and um, and you are good at what you do, then what this experience offers for you is that you have to realize that you, you don't have to accept what people are giving you. If you don't feel safe where you are, if you don't feel valued where you are, then the world is literally your oyster. You can go, well, not literally, but you can go anywhere in the world. Um, you don't have to be confined to just the opportunities that, are, that you can see because there's so many other things out there. And so um, I feel like I might not have answered your question, but, um, <laughs> but in terms of, in, but if you have that sense in self, sense of self that you value yourself and you're going to go where you're going to be valued, that's number one. Number two is what is it that you're looking for? What's most important to you? So I told you we chose Kuwait because for us, mm -hmm. we were looking for, we were looking for the stability, the, the paycheck. Mm -hmm. um, we were looking for excellent healthcare and we we're looking for good housing. And so the school at which we ended up working in Kuwait offered those things so that, you know, you have to have your priorities right. straight. Now, on the other hand, if what you want is to be out of the country um, and you want to learn Chinese, then China offers some opportunities. So figure out what your priorities are. And, and I would even say write them down 
and then you know that becomes part of your search you know if you go on tie online you can look the tie online iss search associates all of them you can look according to regions you can look according to pay you can look according to um you know whatever your objectives are and once you know what it is you're looking for then um then you can look for them and those things will appear awesome awesome and i gotta ask you one final final question and two in two senses, because you have a lot of experience in your life. I know you say you're not that young, but you look good for your age. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is the best advice you've ever received? It sounds corny. Um, I want to hear it. It says, um, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, you know? Mm. Um, mm. And so, you know, the, the idea is that you can be mad about the situation or you can figure out how to illuminate it so that you can make better choices. enjoyed that episode with Zeke I most definitely did um as I mentioned in the podcast I could I could have spoken to him for two three hours <laughs> but always a podcast I try to make it at least an hour or less uh, for your listening pleasure uh, but yeah he's just his, his story is amazing um he's a great storyteller that's why I was I was trying not to interject too much <laughs> I was just uh taking it all in his his uh, wisdom his experience and when you meet people like that in, in life that have wisdom, that have experience, you you tend, you try, you should, in my opinion, listen more than you talk. Um, that's with everyone, but especially people that have, you know, that live life longer than you have. <laughs> but, um, and you can learn something that way. And I definitely learned things. And that last thing he said about um, the best advice he's ever received, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. I mean, damn. That's some deep shit right there. It really is. He said it's cliche. I've actually never heard that one before. So I really, I really like that one. And I really believe it's how people approach people that are successful in this whole venture of living abroad and in life. Is you know, you you adapt. You have to adapt. And it's, it's clear as day to me <laughs> that uh, that Zeke has found ways to adapt to his circumstances, um, given his upbringing giving his trajectory in life and given you know now that he has a family and, and and what his priorities are and i think that's just an, an amazing thing to not only you know for him for himself but for us to hear his story and that was just great it was just great um i'm glad i was able to hear it and that you were able to listen it. i hope you enjoyed it <laughs> but yeah um i know it's been a while it's been a while um i'm getting adjusted to getting back into work just started work last week um, so yeah, so I, I wanted to make sure I gave you a, a really good episode. So, you know, I'm trying to do quality over quantity. I, I, that's, what, that's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> but I will have an episode, hopefully next week, if not in two weeks. I have a very, very special guest in mind. I think you guys are going to really love this guest that I already, that she has told me she has agreed to do it. Um, you're going to be kind of surprised, I think, when you hear this guest. And their story is pretty phenomenal. And the way we even got to talking is also pretty phenomenal as well. So I think I will bring that to you next week. Um, I can't say more than that because nothing's guaranteed, right? <laughs> but yeah, but I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really do. I really did. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Follow me on Spotify and any of your other favorite streaming platforms. See you next week. Hopefully. <laughs> this is Illumin Color Abroad. Peace.